Welcome to the Product Development Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wakeling, and in this episode, I spoke with Jonathan Courtois, Senior Principal Engineer at Sky in the UK. Jonathan leads the development in C++ and Qt of the immersive UI experience of Entertainment OS, which is the operating system powering SkyGlass and SkyStream. Jonathan is deeply passionate about software excellence and advocates for the seamless integration of CI-CD, or Continuous Integration, Continuous Delivery. He fervently believes in the cross-collaboration of products, UI UX, and developer teams within Agile Frameworks. In this episode, we covered lots of ground, all the way from understanding what a great product and engineering relationship looks like, uh, in particular from the senior principal engineer perspective. Then we dove into an example project of how typically Sky focuses on their product development lifecycle. And then finally, we had a chat around what the future might look like in terms of TV and streaming services. Before we start the episode, I'd just like to say many thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm hoping you find it extremely useful, uh, this episode as well as the previous ones we've done. And if you do enjoy it, please do give it a follow on your preferred podcast platform and leave a review. It really helps grow the podcast and it's great to see if people are finding value in it as well. And I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast with Jonathan. Jonathan, many thanks for joining the podcast. really appreciate you joining us. Hi, Adam. Thank you very much for inviting me. In terms of you know, your role at Sky, senior principal engineer, maybe you can touch upon what exactly that role does in the sort of confines of Sky and what your journey looked like maybe in terms of how you got into that position. Probably start with the journey first. Um, I've been a, um, a developer for quite some time. I started in the private business in 2010. So it's been 13 years now. And I always imagine myself that I will be probably a developer for some time maybe 10, 15 years, and go to project management. But throughout my career, going from developers to senior developers, and then principal, I discovered the individual contributor, career path, which actually suited me better than uh, traditional managers who has to do line management and, and manage people and, and project and stuff. So I looked into that path more and more. I've attended conferences. Um, I uh, communicated with other staff plus engineers uh, following the same path. And I think I really find what I really like. So a senior principal engineer uh, at Sky, it's someone that obviously has quite a lot of experience on, on projects that's been at Sky. I've been working on two big projects, um, the Sky Q and the Sky Glass, which have been successful project launch in uh, UK and Europe, in Italy and Germany. And so having this uh, overall vision of uh, how do we build embedded um, TVs and set a box, but also um, using cloud services to provide all the content and all the streaming content now on Skyglass, that help uh, drive the technical vision of the project and the program within, within our team. Uh, the team is currently uh, 70 people for the UI. So I'm currently senior principal on, on the UI side. Uh, obviously, the, the overall program is much bigger. I drive also um, best practices. So it could be um, uh, coding standards, practices in terms of definition of DONs, code reviews, and all you can have in the engineering side. There's also the side of the mentorship program as well, which is quite um, something that I like very much, is how do we support the other engineers, their own success, their own career path, because I believe that 
it's not only about one person to grow, but it's it's about the whole team to um, get better at what they do and and enjoy uh, their work. So I'm really really focused on the the happiness and and having people that like what they do and and like to come at work. So the mentorship part is is quite important. There's obviously uh, an onboarding side. We have new joiners. Uh, there's turnover, like like any business. So we need to look at onboarding new people, training material, and things like that. So I will drive the vision of that. I will not necessarily do all the training, but I will drive uh, some of the vision uh, coming to that. And then there's the most interesting part, which is probably the future, right? The vision of technologies. Uh, what type of technology should we use now and in the next two to five years? And it's really interesting at the moment with all the generative AIs coming into the markets, uh, new languages that are coming, where embedded platform have been using C++ for so many years. But now we have technology like Rust, uh, WebAssembly, and all of this. Um, that's quite interesting. And yeah, making sure that we always drive the, the technology side of the project in the right direction. So. In, in the embedded platform, you can have uh, a monolith, so like one big firmware that you send to TV, or you can create separate microservices or micro front-end into apps and all. So all of these try to, to keep my head around what are the best practices and, and how do we want to drive the technology side of the department forward. I think in a nutshell, that's it. There's a lot of small side uh, tasks, like obviously recruitment sometimes, interviews, you know, collaborating with um, product and architectures. Uh, even nowadays, I try to trust my principles to do that within their their own teams, which I can exp- uh, expand it on a little bit more in the future. I think it, it's interesting because I think some of the things you touched on there remind me a bit of the product manager role, that kind of individual contributor, typically not doing a huge amount of line management, but, um, you know, really owning that vision or contributing to that vision of what things should look like. Um, obviously, I suppose your side may be touching on the more technical aspects of that rather than the business side specifically. Is that fair to say? Yeah, so you're right by saying there's no line management. And I think that's important to kind of focus your time uh, onto the vision. There's a strong alignment with the business uh, direction, though. So the, the, the senior principal engineer and everything above is still part of the leadership team. So I, I work closely with um, product. Um, and the business, the program, the delivery program, and aligning, not necessarily aligning, but understanding the vision of our senior leadership will help to apply to the engineering the right tool and the right things we need to do. So, so how do you, I suppose, work with product well, fostering a great engineering and product relationship? Yes, yeah, so for, for my role, it will be at very high level with our senior product. But for the day-to-day, for the teams that are working on the on the UI or on the TV in general, we decided to move to a cruise and squad model where we've aligned our engineers around crews that are specialized for a particular remit. Um, so for the TV industry, it could be one crew is uh, the discovery side. So you turn on the TV, you have to discover contents that you want to watch tonight. You might not know yet what you want to watch. Another crew might be the engage crew, which is how do you engage with your content? So once you choose the content you want to watch, you're going to play it uh, in full screen. You're going to play, pause it. You might have adverts, etc., etc. So there's different crews like that. We analyzed 
that the best size and kind of remit we have, we'll end up with seven crews. Um, so that include voice, that include um, commerce, et cetera, et cetera. And within these crews, we have different squads. So squads are scrum team within the crews that have their own scrum um, as per the Agile Manifesto, like sprints, two-week sprints where they focus on something. And at this crew level, so a bit outside the squad, you have a mix of different uh, roles. Some product, principal engineer, so uh, senior engineer people, uh, engineering manager, people that do a bit more like project management and line management, and also delivery manager, people that kind of see the more the roadmap, the dependency between components on, on, on a TV like that. And that's where we're going to foster like this kind of collaboration very early on. So by having product and engineering and architect, which is the same crew, that provide that communication very early on. And I think that's very important. We used to have a model where product will go away with an idea, um, probably coming from either an A-B testing or um, asking from customers to uh, fill a survey on some ideas they have. And then they will foster it for six months, very far away from the engineering side, come up with an idea, and then we might kill it in two minutes saying, well, that's not possible or that will take two years to build and too much money. Well, now by, by creating that communication very early on and bringing the innovation within the crew, that, that kind of fostered this, this, this collaboration very early on. So in terms of the, the crews and squads then, do you, is that just for the engineering team? Um, is product included in that? Do, you know, do, do products work on different areas? So you know, how does that all come together? Yeah, so the, the crews are mostly engineers. And the remit is aligned through how we see it in the product. So I was mentioning about the discovery, the engagement, um, the voice side. Product is it's, it is part of the crew, the UX and design as well. Where we see the difficulty sometimes is the alignment between the way the engineering department is structured versus how the product department is structured, especially in large organizations like Sky. And the challenge can be where there's actually gaps where the product department is organized in a certain fashion where, let's say, the remote control is under a, a certain product side of the department, but we've including it with our device, which is more like HDMI and power management and all of that. So for them, it, they're really different remits, but for us, they are, they are the same. And that collaboration might can be a bit difficult at times and, and create challenges in that, in that collaboration. So alignment is key, right? We need to align as much as possible and then fill these gaps when needed. Um, so we, we might have guests within the crews for the time being just to, to help on, on certain features, for example. So what, what other tactics would you do for improving alignment? So like I said, the crews are an engineering initiative, but we... Um, collaborated with all the departments to get them on board. It can't work if you don't have architect as part of the crews or product as part of the crew. So by involving them as early as possible and kind of aligning on this remit and keep aligning, not about aligning once and then saying, okay, this is this is the remit, this is the crews, and we go for. But having this constant alignment and questioning about are we going in the right directions kind of help us to to refocus some of the remit and kind of address these challenges. And sometimes you only discover them when they come. 
along, right? Um, TV product is 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 big. Um, not every quarter has the same priority, and sometimes it's until you find that new um, focus on the products that you're going to find. Oh, there was a gap on one we did uh, a couple of quarters ago, and maybe we need to realign. So yeah, the constant alignment is is probably key in that case. Because of this really close collaboration, does that mean that the need of, I guess, more technical knowledge and skill sets in the product team is not as required because you're so closely connected? Is that fair to say? Yeah, it is definitely fair to say. I think it's what we require from the product is to understand the customers uh, very well, to understand where they're coming from, why are we building a feature, um, what is going to be the gain for the for the customers, or sometimes for the business as well, uh, from a financial point of view. So that's where the product really have a strong input. And the technical side is a bit less important because of that collaboration with architects, principal engineers on the engineering side and engineering manager. So for, for product managers out there, maybe who are, you know, they're not working for a big corporate company, let's say they're in a smaller organization working with a, a small little dev team. From your perspective, if you could give some advice to a product manager in that position, who's working with their engineers, you know, what, what does a great product manager look like to you? What I like from a product manager is someone that is very involved with the product. I love when I ask a question and the first thing they do is, even on a call, since we work from home, is it just turn around, pick up the remote and play with the TV and say, oh yeah, you're right, like that doesn't make sense or in the contrary, that makes sense. So the more you involve with the the product itself, I think the, the better you have an understanding of the engineering side when you have limitations uh, during a, a collaboration on on a problem, for, for example, or you understand your customer better as well. I've seen too many times, you know, product going away on slides and, and draft and stuff and not actually necessarily using it. And that's where the, the innovation comes because with engineer being able to prototype something quite quickly and deploy it to a TV and actually someone using it, um, using a remote or using your voice to control a TV, it is not something you can reproduce in a PowerPoint. And having this engagement, especially in a startup, in a small company, of having this prototype like POC engagement from product very early on, um, I think is key to to be a good product manager. Beyond then, I suppose what you've you've talked about the configuration of the teams at Sky with the crews and the uh, squads. Maybe you can guide us through a kind of example project that you've worked on. You know what that looked like from the very beginning in terms of your input all the way to delivery, uh, and maybe kind of iterations after that as well. Yeah, I mean. As a senior principal, I'm not involved directly into feature delivery anymore, but I can definitely run through projects that have been done quite recently. We had um, the introduction of profile for our playlist uh, system in the TV. So when we launched SkyGlass in the UK, we decided to have a single key on the remote, a plus key that will add any content uh, to your playlist. It could be a linear content, it could be VOD content, uh, it could be app content. The good thing with the, the Sky TV is that it aggregates a lot of the content into one place, including Netflix, Disney+, Plus, etc. So that was this concept of, of playlist, um, that you can have contents to watch later, to watch now, or next episode to be surfaced. But there was a big miss was the the profile, like not everyone in the family watched the same content and want to share that playlist. 
family can be uh, big and have very different viewing habits. So one of the crews have been working for quite some time, closely collaboration again with product and architecture about bringing that uh, concept of profile to um, to the crew. And I think that that works quite well because it was obviously this one was a very UI oriented um, a feature where UX and UI, which I forgot earlier, is also part of the crew, uh, had a very strong input on of how do you manage your your profiles, how do you add content to your profiles um, very effectively. I mean, there's not many keys on a remote, right? So you need to be able to uh, do it quickly. It always starts with product, right? It always starts with product, having the ideas or feeling the needs of our customers to to be able to add things into different profiles. Then very quickly, we involve architects, even before engineering, to kind of see, okay, we, we want to do that. The architect in that case will kind of see the bigger picture of all the systems that need to be involved, right? From from cloud to, to, to middle west system as well. And then we bring the engineer in the discussion, right? The engineer will have an overview of what's needed to be done in, in all the components. Um, so the UI components obviously is a, is a big part of profile, but obviously there's also backend services that needs to be to be draft. Once we have a good idea of what's our MVP, which is the first version we want to get out there, but good enough so our customers actually enjoy it and wants to use it, um, the delivery, the program delivery team will kind of lay out the dependencies between all these layers. So. You can start with building some of the UI against mock, so services that are mocked um, to fake services that are not yet delivered by the team. But ultimately, to have a good experience and to start trial, you need to have um, deliveries from the cloud services, the UI team, and potentially the middleware team. So that's that's the next step where we lay out the roadmap. You have um, an estimation of where things are going to be delivered by different team. And in that case, it was uh, teams that were in different location, uh, somewhere in the US and somewhere in the UK, so different time zone as well, which is not always straightforward. Then the next step is uh, the work with the iteration. So we work in a scrum manner where we'll have sprint goals. We try to do something, let's say creating some profiles, making some quick hidden menus when you can create profiles before before the, the pretty ones are available. Uh, get things into uh, product and design hand quite quickly, so they can, you know, have a, a, a short feedback loop to be able to to input in in the backlog, you know, uh, every every sprint or so. Then there is the, the the deadlines coming, which is usually <laughs> quite optimistic and hard to get. So the closer you get to the deadline, the closer you work on your MVP, what's really necessary, you know, what we can ship. Um, that would be useful to the user without hurting our reputation. Um, that's what we do for, for each feature. And once we achieve that, um, we start a bigger trial. So we're very lucky with, with Sky being a, a quite big company that our staff trials are quite significant. So we got good uh, feedback loop. Uh, so we'll push a new build with the features that we're happy with on a Friday. Then people will use it on the weekend because that's where people watch TV the most. And then we'll get feedback on a Monday where the product will collect all the feedback from the staff trial and then feedback to the team probably on a Wednesday for, for sprint planning, etc. And that will be the iteration that we we'll go through for a feature like that. 
until we're happy enough, stakeholders are happy enough um, for for it to be shipped in the next release. We use feature management um, capabilities so we can have this in trial without having it to customers. But then when we're happy with it, we just turn the feature on and and deploy to the next customer release. So in terms of uh, the the MVP. I'm keen to understand, you know, your process around trimming in particular. You mentioned, you know, without hurting reputation, I think was the, the phrase you used. How do you come up with the the minimum? Essentially, what 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 is the the bare bones version in which is acceptable to the stakeholders that is you know acceptable for launch? I um, mean, you know, how does that work? Is that a very much an engineering led process or is that a product led process? It's it's product led process, mm-hmm. I will say, very much. The leadership of product usually have the the last word of what they believe will hurt the brand if we were to go live with with the features that's not finished. For the profiles, it was quite straightforward in a way that the MVP needed to be able to create a profile, add content to a profile, view the content of a profile, and potentially delete a profile and clean up the link between the uh, content and the profile in some ways. I guess the thing that the engineers will will have an input is potentially the cleanup, you know, leaving dangling uh, link that are often into the database might not be as important as not having the ability to uh, manage your profile for your customers. So that's probably where there will be uh, some discussion and had been discussions between product and engineering on, on priorities, um, where product not necessarily have the full uh, context of what's happening in, in the backend and where we can do some shortcuts. In that case, we decided to postpone by, I think, a month the customer release because we saw the MVP um, needed a bit of polishing, uh, especially around the UX. So sometimes it's possible, sometimes it's not possible, depending on how much marketing and how much the uh, marketing department have invested in terms of revenue. How much of an iterative process is that? Um, you know, now you kind of launch that and you're kind of working on, I suppose, the, the next versions of it. Or Yeah, I think that's something that is in the mind of product when we talk about MVPs. If he doesn't make it to MVP, is it going to be in the next iteration or are we going to move on to another ask from our leadership? It really depends, to be honest, of the feature. I think the the profile within our playlist feature was so big that we had an opportunity to improve it. Um, many iteration after that. But that's not the case of all the features. It happens that some features, especially around regulations that are like European regulation around power cycle and stuff. Once we meet the regulation, we sometimes don't come back on it until there's another need. And then there's something that we at Sky always are careful is accessibility of our features as well. It does sometimes come as as MVP, sometimes it comes just after. Uh, it's same for the analytics data. We can launch a feature to customers without having data on how they use a feature, but it's not ideal because mm-hmm. then we don't know if we are doing the right thing or wrong. So we want we would want that as MVP as well. The accessibility side is is quite interesting because we have good relationship with some of our customers that are using the TV either because they are completely blind or lost of sight. And for this kind of feature that are heavily UX-oriented, their feedback is is primordial, is mm-hmm. very important. The voice guidance is another kind of thing that's 
quite important is that it's how you access things, but how you're directing your customers to um, to access the content. Yeah, I think it's particularly on the, on the uh, accessibility side, having people who are, let's say, you know, registered blind, having those as champions of your product who are willing to give their time to do testing and give you feedback is really invaluable. It's very hard to, I guess, to replicate that in the code base or running an automated test. It's very difficult to give that human view on things. I don't think it should be treated as a separate, um, you know, product requirement. This mm. is this is key for all the features that we we're developing, and having this person. And I've I've met some of our customers that are um, blind that came to the office, you know, test on the product. They're very excited about what Sky is doing on accessibility, um, and I'm very proud of that. It really it really helps to understand. Um, and I would say it's probably sometimes not brought early enough, but we always catch up. So moving on a little bit to the, you know, the future of TV and streaming experiences, obviously Netflix is moving towards things like gaming. Where do you see things going? I think one of the first things that already starting to happen is content aggregation. We had a time where a lot of providers um, following Netflix on the streaming platforms. So to mention them like Disney Plus, HBO, um, even BBC, have creating their own app. And it became quite hard for customers to find content because they might have different apps and it's not enjoyable to kind of search one app one at a time to kind of find if the movie that you heard about is actually available on Prime, on Netflix, or on Sky. So I think the content aggregation and maybe a convergence of this platform together will happen at some point. And I think that's what Sky has started. So on Skyglass, when you search content, we now ingest the catalog of our partners and we aggregate all the content in one place, which is something that Sky is very good at. So that's one of them. I will hope to see more hybrid content, meaning more interaction with the content um, going forward. I know Netflix has been starting with that recently, where you can interact with the content, move from one part to another. But I think this is going to be developing more and more in the future. We can't forget that episode of Black Mirror. I don't know if you've seen the last season uh, where you have AI-generated content. I think it would take some time, but I think eventually we could also see that coming to the television. That will obviously massively reduce the cost of building movies. And that means a lot of content will be created. That content might be closer to what you expect, to what you to, to your need. They might be more niche than trying to touch a large public to kind of bring revenue. There is the the social media part as well. Maybe the um more interaction with your friends and your family. Uh, we know that um, the pandemic got us back more to staying at home, closer to our family, going back to to basic values. If if the future of TV can can bring that all together, and that's what Sky tries to, to do with Sky Live, their new uh, camera that you can put on top of your TV and you can watch content with your family whether it's a football game or um, play Monopoly or anything like that. So kind of bringing family together, especially when they live quite far away. The last one, if I can add, is I think the phone, our smartphone, which is always with us, 
might take a bigger part of the interaction with the TV. We talked about profile before, but I would love to see in the future when when I walk to the room and my TV can know which form is in the room within two meters and say, I, I know it's, it's Jonathan that is in the room and I know that's what he wants to watch. I don't necessarily have to interact selecting a profile, you know, going there. I think phone interaction, which is now completely attached to our body almost, um, might take a place within the immersive experience that a TV can bring into a living room. Yeah. Yeah. So, so maybe we can dig into, you know, those into a little bit more detail then. Funny enough, I actually saw a, a story um, around I think it was CNN Plus in America, which tried to launch a streaming service of the news channel. And I think within one month, it was uh, axed and Discovery and Warner kind of wanted everything in one, I can say, kind of aggregated piece together. I don't think it got a lot of traction anyway. And I think people, as you said, don't want to be consuming stuff individually on in all these individual apps. Um, have enough already. And I think probably anything outside of your home screen, you don't tend to use that much anyway, I, I find. So um, is it just going to be a single app that has everything in it? I'm not really sure because there's uh, the reason why they, they split it is to kind of have this model of um, billing the customers separately. That's going to be a drive, right? More and more people won't be able to afford a Disney Plus subscription and a Netflix subscription and a Prime subscription, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I don't believe in a single app, but I believe in maybe a, a partnership like we do at Sky, where you have a bundle. And I think that in Europe it works very well. A bundle when you can include multiple things that at a cheaper price. So you might you might not pay seven pounds or eight pounds for all your different subscription, but you pay 10 and you've got everything inside. Like we have uh, at Sky, so Sky Cinema, but also Netflix and Paramount Plus, uh, all within a bundle, for example. The good thing with platform like Sky Glass is that you have a home screen where you can, and a search experience when you can find all the content into one place for all your apps. And that's not necessarily the case for operating system like on the LG TV, on the Samsung TV, where until you launch an app, it's a bit harder to find the content. So I will see more as the operating system aggregating all the apps content rather than one app to rule them all at at this stage, or at least in the short term. But I know that in in the US, they don't really believe in in bundles. They're going more into the advert, including into the the apps. And the free-to-me model is more prominent where it's free to you, but you know that you're going to have X number of adverts during that movie. Um, And we see Prime doing it. I wouldn't be surprised Netflix um, or Disney Plus doing it in the US in the coming years. I think, yeah, certainly from my experience, even just, you know, I'm trying to search for a film and knowing I have to go to YouTube to check if they've got it on there or Prime or Netflix. It is frustrating to try and find one movie and you have to search the same thing three or four times in different places to work out who has it, who doesn't have it, what's cheapest, what, you know, where is it best to buy it or rent it, whatever else. So, yeah, n- number two then in the hybrid content interaction, maybe you can kind of explore that a bit more. You know, what, what do you see that? What's your vision in terms of how that might function? What are the after the possible in, in that sense? So, I mean, the one that exists already are very simple, right? It's like when we were kids and opening a book and after the first page, it said, if you want to do that, go to page 12, or if you want to do that, go to page 15. I love those books. Uh, (laughs) I loved it as well when I was a kid. And I think Netflix already starting this kind of interaction. 
But that's really a basic first step of this. I think the interaction will come with a virtual reality or augmented reality very soon. As soon as these kind of devices become cheaper, more accessible, with more content, I think that's where the real interaction is going to come into the living room, where you might have, I don't know, um, uh, a drama or crime movie, and then you have clues that appear you know, into your own room in some ways, and then you interact with finding them and then continue the story. Um, that's the kind of things I would like to see, and I would be quite interested. But yeah, it's really a political and guess at this stage mm-hmm. for me. Um, on yeah. the AI-generated content side of things, obviously this is just emerging. The whole ChatGPT world and kind of mid-journey and all this stuff is all exciting at the moment. Everyone's kind of using it and seeing, seeing what the art of the possible is. It is still a bit clunky, I think. Particularly, you're seeing trailers out there for movies, which are all AI-generated, which are quite impressive for what they are, but they're, they're kind of lacking quite a lot at the moment. So you know, what do, you, do you think it will get to a point where it will be extremely difficult to distinguish triple a movie compared to an ai generated piece of content what are your thoughts there it's hard to know i see where 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 ai will take uh, an important class if we can succeed to generate a different movie based on our customer so basically us being able to provide some input of what we want to see and and then ai will kind of fulfill that um requirement let's say i want to watch uh, an action movie and I love when they're submarines and I love when let's say the Russian win at the end and then just AI we just um, uh, generate a movie for me it would take a long time but I really hope this kind of kind of entertainment can can happen uh, within my lifetime yeah I think that would be quite cool to your question about not being able to distinguish between um, a full team of directors and producers uh, creating movie versus AI generated. Yeah, it might happen, but I think again, it will take many years to get there. Yeah, it makes me think that there's a world where suddenly the viewer will become the storyteller a little bit. And um, I guess it's up to your imagination of how good that story will be. It could be a terrible story, but if, if you're the one in control of it, I guess, yeah. So if you, if you haven't watched this episode, it's called Joanne is Awful from Black Mirror last season. It's just a single episode. It's quite interesting to watch on AI generative content so on the social media side then you mentioned around the friends and family and again i think that's kind of mark zuckerberg saying a lot of the stuff at the moment is around business but it's about connecting people isn't it and particularly people who are not in the same house or even city or even country potentially so um what what do you envision there you know what does that look like to you i think we've we've done a a first step into that word uh and maybe facebook one of the precursor when they uh, had this Facebook portal, so this this kind of camera bar that you can install in your living room and you can basically walk into the room and, and see your family. I think we will come to a stage where you will be able to um, interact with your family, maybe just with your phone or with your camera on the phone and stuff like that, not necessarily having to buy separate hardware and then share content in the living room. How far are we going to go? I mean, it really depends which technology is going to come accessible for, for viewers, right? I mean, at the moment, we all have an, uh, a smartphone. So I would say that the smartphone might play uh, a bigger part. And like I said before, a bigger interaction with the, with the big screen in the living room. I think buying a separate camera in your living room, it's 
a luxury at the moment, and it's also a privacy concern for 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 a lot of people. I think the perception of having an open camera in your living room scares people more. Even technically, you can be spied on with your phone the same way, but it's it's just that lens that you see um, uh, always open in your living room kind of stop some of the people. So I think that will take some time and also the price uh, associated to it. But like I said before, with AR and, and VR getting more accessible, that, that can be a, another way to kind of bring people together. So in terms of traditional TV then, you know, where does that fit into the future? Obviously, you very much focus on streaming and streaming services, but the kind of traditional media, the traditional television channel, you know, is that going to be, do you think, a thing of the past, um, take 10 years time? Yeah, I would think so for different reasons, right? The, the cost of the infrastructure is one. Um, I think the countries are investing more in developing, um, for example, optic fiber in the UK uh, or 5G in other countries. That will kind of enable people to do better streamings, better streaming quality. So that will definitely be um, a blow for the old infrastructure, right? Like the cable infrastructure in, in, in the US. But there's also a change of viewing habits. Like if you look at the young people, how they custom content, you don't have to turn on the TV before 8 p.m. to make sure you don't miss the beginning of the movie of the, of the evening. Now it's all on demand. And that's definitely a viewing habit that's going to affect a lot the viewing content in the next 10 years. So, yeah, I would say these channels um, will lose in popularity over time. And with our population uh, changing and, and younger people being more the main viewers of, of the living room, yeah, I think that will change. Um, mm. Maybe not 10 years, but in the next 20, 30 years, yeah. I mean, the question is where that advertising goes as well. I think that's another interesting thing. There's this big... I mean, a lot of it is hugely funded by the advertising industry um, in particular. So, um, yeah, w- where that money goes is kind of an interesting one. Does it all just go to the streaming services? Is it going to be redistributed? Is it going to be what? A, what's that going to look like? I don't know. I mean, on the other side of things, I suppose the the threat to the larger organisations that are streaming. You've got individual content creators on YouTube who are, for the most part, creating really high quality, good production level content. So. You know, how, how do the big players like Sky and other people like that compete with very niche but high quality individual content created, which is all free to access on YouTube or other emerging video sites? Yeah, I think you touch good points here. Um, like you say, where, where the money is going to go, it can go into these this individual content creators and it goes for some of them. Um, the fact that you said it's, it's niche, that's why it works, right? It's because it's, it's niche. Is more customized. There's a bigger direct communication between um, a content creator and a fan, which you don't have with an actor in a movie or uh, a football player and to a linear channel. So that's why people really like to engage, right? This engagement with the content, the ability to comment and post. And I think that's where there's a big challenge for, for the big screen in the living room is we said, okay, maybe our parents or grandparents were watching linear TV. We, um, in our 30s, 40s, watch um, VOD content. But if we look at younger generation, maybe people that are 15 now, that actually watch their mobile and uh, Instagram and, and TikTok, how do we make sure that this is not going to overcome the TV and how we can make a blend or mix between what you have on, on the mobile phone to, to the big screen? 
I think there will have to be some kind of partnership. Um, I would imagine that the biggest content creators on these platforms will be approached by the big TV company to to partner on, on some of the content that they can propose for the viewers. That's definitely one way to go forward. I think there's definitely a threat and the big players should definitely not ignore that and try to kind of mix the two technology together as as um, as soon as possible, yeah. Yeah, I wonder if there's also a kind of, something we haven't really touched on, that sense of community, obviously you mentioned about that, a direct line to the content creator themselves in that forum, in that medium, but I think there is something about watching something that other people are watching um, in a large community kind of real time commenting on what's happening, uh, interacting with those people who are also watching it. Um, and I wonder if there's going to be sort of a, a, a merge of where TV and streaming is now to kind of embrace more that, I suppose, Twitch kind of style of doing things where people can comment, you can engage live chat, kind of like YouTube when they do premieres and that sort of stuff. So, Yeah, I think if you want to have people looking up from their mobile phone to their TV, you need to provide what they're seeing on their phone at least as an overlay into what the content they're watching. So yeah, I think at Sky, that's the kind of thing to explore, right? How can you not having your heads down into a WhatsApp group, talking with your friend about something you're watching, how can you get both together, right? So having a video and seeing live reactions uh, like we have with Cab Live is a good first step, but then there's not, you know, that, that, that interaction that you have with the phone. So yeah, I would definitely say if we are hoping for a viewer to put their phone down for an hour and a half and enjoy TV, I think that some of the experience they have on the phone will have to come to the big screen and share that um, share that with others, yeah, definitely. So in terms of all those things you mentioned, what are you particularly excited by? Yeah, the, the augmented reality is, is a technology that have been fascinating me for quite some time. I've always been passionate about history and kind of traveling as well at the same time. and. I always thought that by now we'll have the ability to kind of walk into a place and be able to revisit or relive the way people were living in the past, right? So basically bringing museum and traveling into one one space. That hasn't happened yet, but I hope that that will, because of the pandemic and what, what happened recently, we'll have the ability to bring this into the living room maybe sooner than later. So having this this interactive program, it doesn't have to be historical, right? That's that's something I particularly like, but I talk about drama, crime, and all of this. Having this interaction within the living room with this augmented reality, obviously you need the, the, the devices to be a bit more affordable and the content to be present. But once I've reached a, a certain point, I think that's going to become hugely popular. It's like plugging our sensory experience into the, the data that's out there. We have all that information. It's on the internet somewhere. And we're just kind of bringing that into our, our sensory experience, I think, yeah. And maybe Genetive AI has a play uh, has a part to play for this. So it, what, what part would that play in particular in terms of generative AI into that space? It will try to bring a lot of the knowledge into, into one place, right? So if you think about what we know, let's say about a particular culture or particular way of living of the past it will take a lot of historians and pro and, and content creators and and producers to kind of bring something together the generative ai with this huge um learning model of all that content that they can find like you said online 
we'll be able to bring that content together in a short term, uh, much quicker and and kind of create a program that is interactive on a given theme. Awesome. Well, Jonathan, that's um, a great point to finish on. And um, yeah, thank you so much for your time. And uh, it was great speaking to you. Yeah, thank you very much, Adam. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to the Product Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to give it a like and a follow on your preferred podcast platform. And I'll see you in the next episode.